This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to the Minefields, the show where we something, something unacknowledged in the cities, something. I always forget that I'm meant to change the introduction until I'm literally saying it and I go, oh, oh that's right, I forgot about that. Well, an ethical and moral dilemmas is just fine, given the fact that our listeners will have been with us long enough that whenever they hear the words ethical and moral, then they will see both of those as having great big asterisks or footnotes next to them <laughs> saying, please refer back, please refer back to second episode, season eight, 2022. <laughs> well, that implies a level of commitment. I doubt they have. Um, I also like, hey, the, I like, oh, the, come on. I like the implication of what you're saying, that there is not a single person who is a new listener. <laughs> I'm way past that. I'm way past out. that. That's it. Everyone who was ever going to be interested has already found us sampled and either moved on or stayed. Um, what's the show about again today? I don't know. We are we are an acquired taste, <laughs> Willie. And look, in a time of unrelenting dreck, when every guy and his brother seems to have started off a podcast in their dingy little basement, and you know, <laughs> I just think you know there, there are worse things in the world than being an acquired taste. Right. Okay. I like this. The minefield, not the an worst. acquired taste, <laughs> not the worst. <laughs> okay. Um, what are we today, Scott? Oh, Waleed, I love this topic. I mean, it's it's actually unseemly how excited I've been about <laughs> this episode. I'm I'm a little bit ashamed. Um, you know, those we were talking about Succession last week, yep. and we brought up that episode where Tom Wamsgans and Greg the Egg are in that uber expensive opulent restaurant eating uh, what is it the, the songbirds song soaked in yeah. cognac. And they have to cover their faces in order to hide the shame. This is yeah. one of those episodes where I'm so excited about it, I feel like I need to cover my my face in order to do it justice. <laughs> um, it seems to me that there, there are a handful of topics or there are a handful of questions that are seemingly odd or weird or maybe, you know, themselves something of an acquired taste. And yet, once you try to sort out what it is precisely you think about it, you end up uncovering something so essential about either the nature of the moral life or the character of ethical deliberation, or let's call it, say, the conditions of democratic culture, that the whole exercise of thinking one's way through it becomes so salutary, so helpful and beneficial that it's it's worth the effort, even if the question itself is one of only seemingly passing significance. So with all that run up, here's, here's the question, and I'll answer it with what I think should probably be the, the right answer, and then having abandoned the right answer, we'll move our way into the most interesting answer. Um, here's the question. In politics, and by politics, I mean specifically democratic politics, in democratic politics, what's worse, lying or hypocrisy? Um, this is, this I think is the, one of those questions where any answer you give feels wrong. Yeah, oh, I'm going to try to disabuse you. Oh, then. okay. All right. Because yeah, I have yeah. an answer, but it must be incorrect. See, okay. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but I okay. think I know. Knowing you, I think I oh, know what it is. Oh, let's play this say. game. What, what's, what's my answer? Well, no. Let me just say, first of all, the right answer is both are worst. Well, um, except that that's actually impossible. 
It is, it is actually impossible. <laughs> but it can't be the right answer. But I think we need to say that there is something vicious about both practices. Within, within any culture of meaningful, to say nothing of thick relations, which I think despite it all, democratic political communities do have a claim of being knit together by meaningful, if not, though sometimes thick relations. I think both of those practices, having one's leaders being hypocrites and having one's leaders engaging in, I mean, we could say lying, we could say various practices that express a degree of untruth. Um, Either way, I think we'd say that both do something detrimental to the point of eroding the conditions within which that political community exists. But I also think that there is one that is so much worse because of the particular character of democratic communities that it is pernicious, uniquely pernicious, that it seems to bother us as little as it does. So my, my sense will lead is that you think you would think that hypocrisy is the more egregious of the two because hypocrisy suggests something of a total corruption of an individual's character that it's hypocrisy isn't just something that one does it goes to the heart of what one is so one can be a hypocrite as a result of engaging in an act of hypocrisy in the same way that one is a murderer as a result of committing a murder whereas someone is not necessarily a liar as the result of lying on a single instance so there's something about hypocrisy that goes all the way down. And more than that, uh, that there are, and here you're probably just enough of a Platonist to to see this, that there are conditions within which lying in the quote-unquote public interest may well be called for, may well even be necessary for the preservation of public peace, for the performance of international diplomacy, or whatever. Therefore, given the fact that line, sorry, that hypocrisy suggests a kind of total corruption of character. Uh, it's a state in which one is rather than an act that one inter- intermittently does. And that there are conditions, there are circumstances in which line may well be in the quote-unquote public interest or that may well attach to a politician's public duty. Therefore, hypocrisy is the worst of the two. Have I, have I gotten you right? Hmm. As I was listening to you speak... <laughs> It was suddenly unconvincing. <laughs> no, no. It, it just occurred to me that, and this is a really boring thing to say, so I don't expect you to indulge it for too long, although maybe it's unavoidable. Hmm. So much of this question turns on definitions. Yes, it does. So I kind of thought I had an answer, but then as you started speaking, I was like, oh, but what about this sort of example or that sort hmm. of example? And I was like, yeah, but is that hypocrisy? And so, so I think it depends a little bit on what you mean by hypocrisy. Okay. So in in the realm of mate, can I go way back to the beginning? Please. So when I before I said I think I have an answer but it can't be right, what I was thinking at that moment was that I think in private life as a matter of one's morality, lying is worse because hypocrisy is just an inevitable fact of human existence. Hmm. That we are just because we are so imperfect, we 
we'll always find ourselves applying double standards or either to ourselves or or to others or causes that we like and ones that we don't and so on. Um, The idea of some kind of perfectly realised consistency in our character and our conduct seems to me just so far-fetched. But lying is, I think, something that we can... Uh, we can realistically hope to avoid, mm. right? And so for that reason, I, I think lying is worse. But then there are forms of hypocrisy that I would say, no, that's definitely not. This is, which is where the definitional okay. question comes so, in, right? But, so but give in, me one. But, but sorry, but let me, give me, a sense. Let me okay. finish the, my original answer and then we'll sure. come back to it. But in the realm of politics, weirdly, I would have thought that hypocrisy is worse than lying. Mm. Why? What's your what's your intuition? Because I feel like the 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 basic assumptions are are changed there. In that, as you the, the Platonist point you were making, politics, I think, throws up situations that demand lying in certain circumstances because the consequences of telling the truth, especially in an unvarnished way, would be hugely detrimental. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example of this, but maybe an example. Can I I propose one to you? Okay, sure. Let's just say, for instance, that a government knows that in in a number of days, a massive devaluation of the currency is going to have to take place. Yeah. But if that becomes public, then it will precipitate yeah, exactly. and hoarding of funds and so on. Yeah. And therefore, it will in some ways precipitate the very crisis that the devaluation of the currency would hopefully head off. Yes. And then a and prime minister is asked for some reason, exactly. is the currency going to be devalued? <laughs> yes. Days. And yes. so I think that it becomes morally complicated. And I'm not even just saying politically complicated. I think morally complicated. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. For a politician there to tell the truth because the damage they would do in doing so, I think, um, is is so significant that it must be borne in mind. I, I don't know if this is a good example of that in practice, but I, I suspect it is. Remember the early days of the pandemic? when we were being urged not to wear masks. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Mm, I do. And my understanding of this, so please correct me if I'm wrong, and that applies to anyone listening as well as to you, Scott, was that part of the reason that that was a, the message that experts and politicians and so on were, were expressing was that they were worried that if people were encouraged to wear masks... Um, then medical professionals who really needed them wouldn't be able to get them. And so instead, what we were told was that masks weren't going to help because, and we got into technical things about the size of the pores in the mask compared to the size of the COVID molecule and all this sort of stuff. And I distinctly remember having these conversations on air, like I was interviewing an expert and I was saying, so how effective would a mask be? And being told, no, not at all. And I know that knowledge has moved on from there, the idea of COVID as, a, as an aerosol spread rather than um, surface-based infection has sort of taken off and all this sort of stuff. And so the science around it has evolved too, but looking back and not Looking back too far, actually, it happened fairly quickly. 
I very much got the sense at least that we were being told something that was untrue hmm. for the sake of a greater good. Now, it may not be a very good example because there's an argument that that sort of discourse, that sort of, what would you call it, dissimulation? Yes. Um, that that then undermined confidence in subsequent scientific advice as it was being. Okay, so we can get into those sorts of arguments about that specific if we want to call it a lie, that that specific lie and whether or not it was virtuous. But you can you can see the motivation behind it. But you could even think of examples that are far that that are more trivial. Like, you know, times when I'm sure Malcolm Turnbull was asked what he thought of Donald Trump, right? Mm. Mm. Um is it the right thing? And let's just assume, I don't want to, you know, state this as a fact, but let's just presume for the sake of the argument that Malcolm Turnbull despised Donald Trump. Would, would it have <laughs> been the right the thing for him to say that? Uh, probably no, not, actually. Of course not. Of course no. not. And so th I think politics throws up these things where politicians must, must is a very strong word, mm. where, where there are, it seems at the very least, good, not self-interested, but public-minded reasons for the politician to lie. And I want to distinguish those from examples where the politician is lying for their own political purposes or, yeah. or something like that. But sometimes that distinction might be hard to spot. You know, um, politicians who lie about liking one another or their ability to work together, for example, because if they were to admit that they don't like each other, this might hugely undermine public confidence or undermine the ability of the government to function or whatever. Um, there are lots of examples where I think that, that sort of thing arises in politics. Um, but then again, I think it comes down to what sort of... Well, so sorry, and then let me address the hypocrisy point. In politics, mm -hmm. hypocrisy seems a different sort of a thing because, and perhaps the high watermark of this is an example we've already discussed, uh, I think the first uh, new show for this year, yeah, um, which was all the stuff surrounding Boris Johnson's own violation of his own COVID protocols. So when everyone That's was right. in lockdown, they're hosting work functions, work parties and things like that. Of course, they then say they weren't, they were just work meetings, blah, 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 and on and on it goes. But you can see the visceral anger towards the government that emerges in response to something like that. that that's because of a charge of hypocrisy that simply cannot be brooked, right? This idea of applying a double standard so egregiously that it has nothing really to do with the public interest and instead conveys this idea of taking the public for fools. Mm. So that was kind of my original way of formulating this. But the reason I wound up back at the point of definitions is that it does all really depend on definitions. I mean, for yeah, example, if I were going to say, here's an example of hypocrisy, you are a... Um, uh, I don't know, you believe in X ideology, maybe it's kind of some kind of free market based political order, and yet you carve out this exception when it become to deal with, I don't know, climate change or welfare policy or whatever. I think at that point, what you're saying is anything that's not ideologically pure becomes hypocritical. But if we were to say that that's an unacceptable political act, then what we're basically doing is saying that politics is unacceptable because politics is, in the end, especially democratic politics, the art of compromise. That's right. And the ability to suspend one's own ideological convictions is not something to be condemned, I don't think, in democratic politics. It's something that's utterly necessary if this is going to work as a going concern. So if you want to call that hypocrisy, then I... I have to put it in the same basket as certain forms of lying, right? As, as the 
the necessary trade-offs that, that occur in political and democratic life. And so in the end, I wind up in this position, which is perhaps unsatisfactory, which is to say, well, lying or hypocrisy, which is worse? Well, it depends which lies and which hypocrisies wow. and what we okay. mean by those terms, which makes this a very uninteresting episode. So if you want, I can go away now and you can introduce the guest <laughs> and you can have a more useful conversation. No, no, no. Oh, okay. Let's just, before we bring in our guest, let's sure. tease out a few things that I think are really helpful. I like the way that you kind of felt your way around the topic and it gives us the ability, I think, to really be much clearer about what we're talking about. Um, it is worth saying that really any form of moral ambition, let's just put it that way, uh, I mean, Judith Sklar, the, the, the great uh, liberal political theorist, used to speak quite tenderly of morally assertive hypocrisy. In other words, as soon as you project something about the way that you would like the order of things to be, you are opening yourself up to the fact that there will be necessarily a gap between the way that you hope things are, the way that you are advocating things to be, and the degree to which your behavior is able to match that. Uh, one of the things that she also points out is that hypocrisy has been used relentlessly against any movement against the status quo mm. to, okay, you are putting forward this ambition, this vision for a just political order, and yet you yourself are still partaking in, for instance, fossil fuel-based cars or leather mm. shoes or, you know, so you might, you hold something out but because your lives don't match with it, therefore it invalidates the entirety mm. of your political vision. The only person who can have a political voice in that understanding is one who is morally pure all the way down. Now, I don't, I mean, I don't think that follows at all. Um, just because, say, an advocate or a politician puts forward a vision or a statement of fact, it is right under these circumstances that we socially distance, I know that it's difficult. I know that it means you're not going to be able to be there present with your loved ones. But this is the way that we stop the spread of the virus. This is the way that we protect the most vulnerable among us. This is how we shoulder um, these shared sacrifices. This is what's best for society as a whole, even if it causes us individual pain. I mean, those are the sentiments in unusually sincere or unusually seemingly sincere press conferences, prime ministerial speeches mm. that Boris Johnson engaged in. Now, is that false? Is what he said wrong? Is the public health advice or the, uh, the, the, the substance of the rules that were laid out, were they in any way untrue or secretly unbeneficial for British society? No, they were right. Now, that means... Is the fact that Boris Johnson himself and those closest to him didn't abide by, the, by those same rules, they themselves might be morally culpable. But that doesn't invalidate what it was that they said. And I think one of the things that really strikes me, Waleed, and this concerns me, this concerns me more than just about anything else that we discuss in this conversation, well, to, so far at least, we, we've become expectant of lying from politicians, we expect that there will be various forms of prevarication and ass covering and obfuscation and spin and dissimulation. We've come to expect that. Um, maybe we don't accept it 
fully. And I think it actually says something about our moral wiring, about our kind of latent ethical commitments to the conditions of democratic morality. It says something that we still feel that tang, that pang, that shock when a politician is caught in a bold-faced lie. We still kind of feel that wasn't right, even if I've come to expect it from them. And yet, lying in politics isn't anywhere near as culpable, as egregious as I think it, it ought to be. And I'll, I'll give reasons why in, in just a moment. Whereas, hypocrisy seems to function almost like a sackable offense. So if there's, you know, I mean, Boris Johnson most likely lied to Parliament, which is a resignable offense. But the thing that really turned the British public against him was the attribution of hypocrisy. It's worthwhile noting, Waleed, that back in 2016, I mean, you, you described this in a way that I, I think about regularly, but I kind of think you're not right now. You, you used to say that, well, Trump might be a liar, but he represents the capital T truth. Hillary Clinton might be publicly more truthful, but she represents the capital L lie. Can I, I think be maybe clear? That was, um, I remember the way that. that, yeah, oh, sorry, sorry. The way that people who were willing to swallow yes. their reticence and vote for Trump, that's the way. That yeah, this isn't it. my assessment. That's, yeah. no, that's right. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Thank you for that clarification. <laughs> okay. Um, let, let me put a slightly different spin on it. Trump is a liar but he's not a hypocrite. Mm. He's not one way behind closed doors and another way in front of crowds. He might be a liar, but all politicians lie. We can deal with liars. At least he's not a hypocrite. Clinton might seemingly tell the truth, but she's a hypocrite. So they're not quite the same thing. I think they might both be true in the minds of the people I was trying to describe. Yeah. But I don't think they're the same thing. Um, no, no. I, and I, and I, I don't and think the they're, reason they're the same I, thing. The either. reason I say that actually is now that I think about it very briefly, um, I think if you were to expose Trump as a hypocrite, I don't think it would change the assessment of some oh, of his followers. I Dep really it would depend disagree. on the hypocrisy, right? But It would. It would. But if you, you know, Trump can say this system is terrible, it, it serves all the fat cats and not you. Um I know, I know because I'm, I'm an outsider like you, et cetera. And then when it gets exposed that you know, he's the beneficiary of this system and you get arguments about the amount of tax he pays or whatever, his response is, what, that just shows I'm smart. Mm. And his followers will go, okay, I, I, I go along with that. Yeah, but see, that's not hypocrisy. If the system is rigged and he knows how to game the system, then it doesn't mean he's a, he's a hypocrite. It means he's cunning. I think the real display, and I don't want to turn this into, yeah, <laughs> into, yeah. into sort of Trump's sort of artsman, artsmanship, but the real test for me was the way he talked about and framed COVID before and after he caught it. Mm. It was remarkably similar. Um, even after the well, experience of yeah, hospitalization. Sure, that but except that the way he framed COVID changed with the week. It's not that big a deal. Yeah, but it was, but like, he was all over the place with the I way know, he was framing I know, COVID. I know, but what was consistent was minimization. What was consistent was minimization, even after he had it. It was, oh. Well, no, it wasn't minimization, though, when it was the China virus. 
No, that that's that that's true. So that's he true. he flitted around. This is, I guess, you can always find consistency if you occupy every possible position throughout the the episode, yeah. right? I don't know. Anyway, we're in the weeds. Okay. Well, and anyway, let me just make this one last one last point, and this hopefully will kind of get us maybe somewhere where we're going. Um, I mean, it is it is striking to me that there is there does seem to be a kind of visceral reaction that many of us feel to hypocrisy. And this is an old reaction as well. I mean, hypocrisy has long been listed among uh, among the venal sins, for instance. There is something about hypocrisy that seems to get up the noses of democratic publics in the way that lying does not. Whereas it strikes me, and you may disagree with this, and, and I don't want this to be taken as an absolute statement, but I think it's pretty close, that hypocrisy... We shouldn't care less, I think, if two politicians like one another. And so we shouldn't ask the question. Yeah. Uh, we shouldn't ask questions that invite them to be hypocritical. But, but the question about will the currency devalue, that's... Yeah, but I think this... Yes, I think that's, that's, that's exactly right. So hypocrisy, I still take as being fundamentally a personal vice. I think it's... I think it's arguably worse when a public figure does it, especially a public figure who trades on the appearance of, say, sincerity or authenticity. Mm. Um, or family but values. It's still, or family values. But it still is a personal vice. So, for instance, if a politician says something that I think is rightly regarded as true and they don't practice it themselves – that in no way invalidates the truthfulness mm. of what it is they said. It may well so spoil the messenger that people cannot any longer be persuaded by the truthfulness of it. And that then adds a kind of a judicial layer of harm. But hypocrisy still is fundamentally a personal vice. I think it's wrong. I think it's bad. But I think in many respects, especially in democratic politics, it's unavoidable. And my sense is hypocrisy should bother us less than it does, and we should be requiring purity less from our politicians than we do. By contrast, lying corrupts entirely the conditions of democratic culture, because what lying does, I mean, someone like Shauna Shauna Schifrin sees this, Hannah Arendt was the great one to see this. What lying does, if one understands political speech or communication as holding out or promoting a vision of a common world in which we understand one another, in which we take one another on trust, and in which through our exchange of words, we learn to cooperate with one another and realize that common vision together. If political speech is the promotion of a common world and the cultivation of conditions of mutual trust, what lying does is it is it destroys, it corrupts, it undermines, it erodes the very possibilities of the projection of a common world. It invites people to buy into something on the understanding that what they are buying into is fundamentally a lie. Which is something what Trump that did, serves, right? That was the effect of Trump. Yes, uh, uh, yeah. of course, which is something, in other words, that gets their consent for an end other than the end that they thought that they were serving. So here's my here's my analogy, and it's a one-line analogy, and I'll, sh- I'll shut up after this. It seems to me that lying in democratic politics or, or, or untruthful speech or, or lying public communication is to democratic politics what infidelity is to the marriage vow. 
it is something that so undermines the very conditions within which that relationship is able to continue that it cannot be understood as anything other than a total perversion or corruption of those conditions, which is why I think I'm, I think I'm prepared to argue, Walid, that there are no conditions, circumstances in which politicians should lie with impunity or with full justification. Uh, not answering fully, saying that one cannot answer questions like this, withholding information in the public interest, I think that's one thing. But engaging in something that lowers the capacity of the public to trust and that corrupts the conditions within which people can trust one another and can enter a vision of a common world, that is a mortal threat to the conditions of our common life. I mean, it was a long line, wasn't it? But I, I'm going to go to the guests. I think I disagree with that. Okay. And I think it's a question of framing. I think you could frame the hypocrisy thing in similarly destructive terms. And then you're just back at choosing your preference. But um, I'll explore, look, you know, we'll interrogate that more, I think, later in the show, if I remember. This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, as you might be doing right now, or you can catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Our guest is one of the great friends of this show, one of our favorite people in this world. Catherine Gelber is the head of the School of Political Science and International Studies, and she's professor of politics and public policy at the University of Queensland. Catherine, thanks so much for coming back and joining us on The Minefield. Thank you for having me. So I'm, I'm going to do to you what I hate journalists doing to politicians. I'm going to require of you, before you then engage in any further nuance which we're really expecting from you, by the way, <laughs> if, if it comes down to a binary choice, which is worse in public life, which is worse for the conditions of democratic politics, when politicians lie or when politicians are revealed as being hypocrites? Are you going to force me to make a choice? It's what um, he does, Catherine. It's what he does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then I think uh, hypocrisy, but I, my real oh, answer... Wow if I can do that, is that it matters what they're lying or being hypocritical about, what their intention is, and what the consequences are. Okay. Yes, Good. exactly. I apologise right. that Scott's not joining in with this applause. <laughs> Go ahead, Catherine, make your case. Okay. So in practice, the first point is that uh, lying and hypocrisy are often intertwined and so in practice, it's very difficult to separate them. You referred earlier to the example of Boris Johnson, but it wasn't just that he was hypocritical about his own uh, party members' adherence to the policies. He did also lie about it. The two things were integrated. So I think that on the one hand, lying is actually a stage of development, right? So when children are relatively young still, we actually teach them how to lie in social in social situations in which lies are expected. So they open a Christmas gift from an auntie and they dislike the gift and we teach them to say, thank you very much for the lovely present. So lying is actually a stage of development and learning how to tell white lies, whether in social situations 
or the example that Waleed talked about of Malcolm Turnbull being asked while he was Prime Minister what he thinks of another president or Prime Minister of another country. They're the kinds of things that grease the wheels, even of democracy, right? So those kinds of white lies, whether in private life or in public life, are important. Some of the other examples that you discussed uh, earlier are in that category. And then there are other lies that or hypocritic actions which are part of a much bigger whole. So we know, for example, that uh, Donald Trump lied about the size of the crowd at his inauguration. And in the early days of the Trump administration, there was an argument about the importance of that lie. Some people were saying, oh, he's just, you know, he's an egotist and, of course, he wants to say he had the biggest uh, crowd, even though the photographic evidence shows clearly that that was not the case. Oh, just ignore it. And other people saw that lie as embedded within a broader political strategy. And it was clear that it was political strategy. So the Washington Post, for example, the Washington Post's fact checker has decided that Trump lied more than 30,000 times in his four years of the presidency. And the, interestingly, the number of lies that he told increased from approximately six per day in the first year of his presidency to 39 per day in the final year of his presidency. So this is a bit like the frog in the boiling water, the, the scale, the scope and the number of his lies increased progressively as he realised that doing so would not lose him his constituency and as the Republican Party became and remains increasingly, remains totally convinced that they, not all of the Republican Party, but significant sections of the Republican Party, that they must support Trump's bid for another term in office, because if they don't, they will lose their constituency. And so this is a, this is a, the, the lie of the stolen election, the fact that there's still lies going around about voter misinformation, etc. absolutely crucial to the democratic future of one of the world's biggest democracies, and therefore to world politics. So those lies are completely uh, damaging to the democratic culture that you've been speaking about. He's also hypocritical, of course. I won't, again, don't want to make this entirely about Trump, but we can give no. examples as we, well, he did before about Trump being hypocritical. So it's the, what matters is what they're lying about, what their intention is and what the consequences are. And when they're lies that grease the wheels of democratic culture, we accept them. When it's hypocrisy that greases the wheels of democratic culture, we tend to forgive uh, Barnaby Joyce has been forgiven his indiscretion and has resumed uh, most of his previous activities, even though he was promoting family values at the same time as he was committing infidelity. The Australian public and certainly the National Party and the National Party voters appear to have forgiven him those indiscretions. So because they've decided, I think, that that was ultimately a private matter. It played out in public life, but it was ultimately a private matter that didn't have a denigrating or devastating effect on democratic culture. He did also pay a price, didn't he? So it was he did. three years he of wilderness. And so I think there's three. an element of that in that example. Can I, yeah. can I pick something up here? Just yeah. very, very briefly. I mean, Catherine, you've, you've just made my case for why lying is far more damaging. I mean, what Trump did relentlessly over the course of his presidency was to uh, corrode or to strip the democratic public square bare to remove or to devastate the conditions within which 
voters, citizens could hold one another to account under the basic rules of truthfulness and accuracy. And, and the other thing that he demonstrated is that lies in democratic politics are not a sackable offense. You can do these things and not be punished necessarily by the voting public. What's so interesting to me then is that for Boris Johnson, who is, let's just say, has a reputation for being similarly promiscuous with the truth, voters know that about him and they've more or less turned the blind eye, but it's hypocrisy that was too much. And it was hypocrisy surrounding something that meant a great deal, namely the ability of citizens to be with one another. Here's, here's my hypothesis. We simply don't think, we don't believe that lies do the damage to the conditions of our democratic culture that they do. We think it's just the, a fact, a given of politics. But hypocrisy, hypocrisy might begin with a split in the character or the revelation of, of the corruption of the character of, the, of a politician. But why hypocrisy really bothers us is that fundamentally it's about us. What really bothered the public about Boris Johnson is that he took us for fools. He presented as being sincere and he's laughing at us behind our backs. One of the things that I've been stunned by is how many British friends that I have, people that I know, that took that hypocrisy personally. We wanted to be with our loved ones. He told us this, and he was laughing at us behind closed doors. So I think that one of the reasons that we undervalue the damage of lying and we overvalue the crime or the vice of hypocrisy is that we simply don't regard fully enough the importance of truth for the conditions of our common life or truthfulness, trustworthiness, trust. And that we tend to take hypocrisy far too personally. We thought you were with us. When you presented sincerely, we thought you were on our side. And now we see you've been taking us for mugs. And I think, I think that, I think, is, is, is what begins to kind so, of... Scott, I think you're being distorted by the examples here. So what you describe in Boris Johnson is true. But Boris Johnson's hypocrisy, if you like here, takes on a certain magnitude because of the scale of the sacrifice that people were asked to make in the pandemic. Yes, that's true. And sacrifice becomes a major theme in this, right? So it's not mere hypocrisy, and it's not merely that you're laughing at us. Um, a audio tape leaked of politicians talking about someone, like a member of the public or whatever, in a disparaging way doesn't destroy them. Like, when, was it when, um, was it Bob Hawke who hmm. referred to someone that he encountered in a shopping centre as a silly old bugger. Remember that? Mm. So, I mean, I know that's one example and it's one person, but that sort of thing doesn't end a political career. Not that this necessarily in Boris Johnson's political career. But it's more that what Boris Johnson did, at least in the minds of the public, wasn't just break his own rule. It was violate a pact of mutual sacrifice. Yes, that's right. That's bigger than mere hypocrisy. And so I think to go from, um, well, everyone's really angry about this and they feel personally offended, so we're now elevating hypocrisy to a level above lying, I just think is overwrought. You're taking a very singular example, I think, and from it, extract, like generalizing from mm. a particular that I, I just don't think works that way. And the same is true w with lying, right? So 
Trump proves that you can get away with lying in democratic politics. Well, I suppose he does literally in the sense that he did get away with it or he was a one-term president, so maybe he didn't. But he got away with it to some extent, sure. But he did it in a way that no one has ever done before and probably not, probably won't hitherto, like, or henceforth, sorry, because it was just so extraordinary. The thing with Trump was that the, the nature and the frequency of lies was so enormous that it was almost like it overwhelmed the fact that a lie was being told. It was like, well, you know, how often did you hear people say any other president would have had their presidency ended by this scandal, but it's just a Tuesday in the Trump administration, right? Mm. That sort of phrase was so common. So I think trying to draw general principles from these kinds of examples is is bound to mislead us. And so I, I just worry about, about that, right? You, you, especially in the Boris Johnson case, you're talking about a pandemic, and what gets bound up in this is not just hypocrisy or laughing at us. It's also abuse of power at a time when the power of the state has been radically expanded because of its ability to do things like order lockdowns, which is just unthinkable to us until COVID came along. I just think that these examples, there's, there's so much more bundled into it than these pure types of lying Agreed. and hypocrisy. I, look, I agree with that, but I also think that it depends who takes it personally. So I think people taking it personally is actually key to the scale of the response, to whether people are prepared to turn a blind eye or whether people see this as corrosive to democracy. And the thing with the Johnson example is that, yes, it, like obviously lockdowns affected the entire UK population. So there are an awful lot of people in that one who can take that particular example personally. And I, so I think it really depends on the, the nature of the lie or the nature of the hypocrisy and who is likely to take that personally. So when a public figure cheats on his wife, for example, while trumpeting family values, there's a section of the population that will be deeply personally hurt by that and see that as corrosive to that person's, the credibility of that person's character, because they either know somebody or it happened to them and they really substantively feel the impact of that. And then there will be other people who take a different view and think, well, don't politicians always philander? That's not particularly germane to me. Same around parliamentarians who, for example, might lobby for um, restrictions on abortion and yet in their private lives perhaps have a mistress who may have had an abortion. You know, there are all those. It will depend very much on who takes it personally and how many people take it personally. And that is dependent on the context. That is dependent on the particular lie and the particular hypocritical uh, event that we're talking about at the time. And that, in fact, goes back to where we started, which is that neither lies nor hypocrisy are inherently worse, but that rather the context matters. You are listening to The Minefield. That voice belongs to Catherine Gilber, who's a Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Queensland. Waleed Ali is my name. My co-host is Scott Stevens. Look, I, I don't disagree with anything that either of you have said. I didn't mean to, and it wasn't certainly my intention to extrapolate too much from the Boris Johnson example. I think it's probably worth saying that it was most likely, you might disagree with this diagnosis, it was most likely the sense or the widespread opinion 
that Kevin Rudd was a hypocrite that led to his stunning collapse in popularity, whereas the lie told by John Howard about the invasion of Iraq left him, I wouldn't say unscathed, but not mortally wounded in the way that Kevin Rudd's um, back down. But what would you do with the Julia Gillard example, which I personally don't think was a lie, but was widely perceived as such and poisoned her prime ministership? Yeah, I think with that, there are a whole lot of other things going on that I just don't think we can get into here. I guess my, what, what, what my general point was is that hypocrisy is a big deal to us, and we tend to find it more offensive than lying because we've become so inured to lying from politicians, whereas hypocrisy becomes a big deal when sincerity or authenticity or personal belief or commitment to a cause becomes part of a politician's brand or form of self-promotion. They're with us, and therefore any back down from that then becomes a kind of personal affront. Let me just put this to you both. Um, I think it probably is a stain on his soul that Lyndon Johnson was an unreconstructed racist. In a very real way, that doesn't bother me. Because what he managed to achieve as part of his vocation in office for civil rights was unparalleled, uh, certainly at the hands of, of true believers in the cause. Hypocrisy on that front doesn't matter anywhere near as much to me as, for instance, his willingness, as Lyndon Johnson's willingness to continue to promote what was fundamentally a self-serving, self-aggrandizing Uh, lie uh, in favor or surrounding America's involvement in Vietnam. Um, So I think that's one of those examples where there's one lie that is, say, catastrophic for the conditions of trust and believability. Whereas the hypocrisy there, I don't think that should bother us. And I certainly doesn't, I don't think it does anything to take away from Johnson's stunning achievement on behalf of, of civil rights legislation. And I don't think it does bother us, does it? It bothers a lot of people. Really? Yeah. I very rarely hear anybody talk about that. The Vietnam stuff I hear about. I, got, I would say that example you provide is actually a really useful one because that's an example where lying was worse than hypocrisy in the public imagination, which mm. brings us mm. to your point, doesn't it, Catherine, that it really depends on the scale and the nature of the respective lies or hypocritical acts. Yes, I think there's something, I can't remember the detail now, but there's something in the history of the 1967 referendum as well in Australia and how that came about where you could make the argument that there was some hypocrisy going on among the people who agreed to let it going ahead, not expecting it to succeed. And yet we now look back on that referendum as such an important moment in our constitutional and political life and as such a such a win for the advocates and champions who advocated that change uh, at a time of obviously great change around uh, racism and racial discrimination globally. So, sure, with hindsight, we can identify all kinds of hypocritical behaviours, but, yeah, I don't think that... Uh, I don't think it's appropriate to apply, for example, a 2022 lens to those kinds of historical events and then with the lens of 2022 define them as hypocritical. And, yeah, I don't think those kinds of hypocrisies 
matter. They're not toxic to democratic culture. What really ultimately matters is which ones are toxic to democratic culture, which ones mm. really undermine the conditions that we need in order to be able to form a vision of what a good life is and how we want to pursue it collectively and, of course, solve the huge challenges facing the globe. And that's what mm. you get in the Boris Johnson COVID example, isn't it? So it, it becomes toxic to democratic culture. It erodes any bonds of trust in democratic culture, not merely because it's hypocrisy, but because it strikes at the heart of some kind of collective effort and um, the solidarities that people were being asked to lean into in that moment. And yes. So, yeah, I think, I, sorry, Scott, I think I can only end up with Catherine here because I think the more you break this down, the more you realise, A, I think the point Catherine makes about how lying and hypocrisy aren't easily extracted from one another is no, really of course that's right. But also that our responses to them don't fall along lines of taxonomy. They fall along lines of extent or depth or toxicity. Yes. I actually think the three of us are much closer together than we may well think. The only claim that I've made on behalf of hypocrisy is that the public seems to care about politicians being hypocritical more than politicians being liars. I don't think anything's been said to necessarily disprove that so or we, to find fault with that. What would you do with the Joyce example? But, but hang, hang on. My overarching point was that lying is, in fact more destructive and we should far less we should be far less blase about it than we are because precisely to the extent that a line that line erodes the possibilities the conditions of democratic trustfulness our ability to be trusting in one another but you wouldn't say of course that what boris johnson just to go back to the example for a second he didn't lie to the public his act of hypocrisy had the effect of political untruthfulness just to the extent we trusted you when you said this but it's not that what he said painted a faulty picture of the world it's that it goes to the heart of public trust i guess my overarching point then is that hypocrisy certain forms of hypocrisy or as you referred to it before Walid, of dissimulation maybe not presenting things precisely as they are when facing the public. Certain forms of that are going to be inevitable for representative politics predicated on compromise, mutual cooperation. Whereas the myth of the noble lie, that sometimes we simply have to lie, I think we've simply give our, given ourselves over to that fact as if it were a fact more easily than we in fact do. If there's no other lesson of the last six years, it's just the extent to which lying corrupts our ability to live together. So, no, I was going to throw it back at you, Scott. I'll throw it to Catherine. So I think systematic lying for the purpose of undermining core democratic institutions, and I would include universities in that, hmm. that is toxic. And I agree that lie, that type of lying corrupts and we should pay more attention to it. And global politics at the moment is not paying enough attention to it. And global politics at the moment is applying a lens of the white lie or the noble lie 
to lies that are toxic and that is to, that is at our peril. We do that at our peril. Can so I then I, ask the two of you, can I ask the two of you then, would you regard partisan exaggeration a form of lying? Uh, well, it would depend on what they're lying about. Uh, certainly in the United States, the Republican uh, Republicans recently had a convention at which they passed a statement calling the January 6th insurrection an instance of legitimate public discourse. So I would call that a toxic lie. Is that a lie or an opinion? Well, I think that... So this is a whole new show, but I would define January 6th as an insurrection that was very, very dangerous for democracy and the subsequent attempts by various state, uh, by many, many state legislatures to restrict voting rights and to restrict uh, mail-in voting, for example, and to disenfranchise certain parts of the, of the community as all adding up to some pretty serious stuff. So, yeah, I would call it a lie. Yeah, but I guess the thing, left, right in this country, left, right activists, environmental campaigners, union activists, I mean, partisan exaggeration is part of the public rhetoric of agitation and advocacy. Um, I'll say it's a lie. Yeah, me too. I'm happy to plant that flag. <laughs> I mean, I think it's an inevitable one. I don't think it will ever go away. I think we have to correct for it rather than expect to eradicate it. But yeah, it annoys me greatly. Yeah, and I think it's a lie. Um, all right, God, this, I feel like we're only halfway through, Catherine. <laughs> yes. Alas, the time says otherwise. We are definitely done. But um, thank you so much for joining us once more. I, we probably have to finish this show sometime in the future. In which case, we'll we'll try to find you and hunt you down and uh, call you back if that's possible. Well, that would be lovely. Thank you for having me. Catherine Gelber is the head of the School of Political Science and International Studies and professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Queensland. Our guest for this week's Mindfield. We'll be back next week. I promise. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.